Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving... At your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Absolutely, yeah, we want to win every test match, there's no doubt about that. We, we know we've wrapped up the series here today, which is pleasing, but um, as I've said many times now with the test match championship, every test match is, is really important, so winning the series is almost less, is less important until we wrap up next week, hopefully with another good win, but, um, and we've probably got to learn a little bit from what happened in the Ashes. I thought when we won the fourth test, it was such an emotional high. I thought that we looked after ourselves well in a celebration sense. It wasn't anything outlandish, but I just think the, the emotional high of winning that test and then a fast turnaround, guys were just a little bit flat mentally, I guess, and a bit drained from, from having such a big high. So um, to try and keep it nice and level the next few days, have a few days off, rest up and <clears throat> hit that fifth test of the summer with as much energy as, um, as we hit the first test of the Gabba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel. That was, of course, Australian captain Tim Payne speaking after Australia defeated New Zealand by 247 runs. And Payne um, just going through the fact that it's not really a dead rubber at the SCG. Now, joining me on the podcast today, as usual, I have Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Hey, man, I'm good. I thought it was a pretty good Boxing Day test. I mean, the result was a foregone conclusion, as it turned out, but... The New Zealand travelling fans made it for me. 18,000 of them, um, big crowds. The pitch was a lot better than I'd feared. So I really, I really enjoyed the last few days. And also joining us, we have a special guest, Lachlan McCurdy, the multimedia producer for Sporting News uh, AU. And uh, you didn't tell me this when we met at the Big Bash, but you've started a rival podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast, but I did see you've had a cricketer on there. Lachlan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Good to be here. Love my cricket, so... Keen to chat about everything that's been going on the last five days or so. It's been a big five days of cricket. In this podcast, we're going to wrap up the MCG test match. We're going to preview the SCG test. We've got all the cricket headlines, including a big retirement and all the big bash news. And I've also got a couple of feature interviews in this podcast with Chris Green and Lloyd Pope. And then to bring it home, we've got Can't Let It Go. All right, let's get into the Melbourne Test. Australia, as I said, beat the Kiwis by 247 runs. And, you know, I feel that it was a great crowd, great occasion, but the Kiwis fluffed their lines. They did not perform well. They were completely hammered. And it started at the beginning. Kane Williamson won the toss and for some reason sent the Aussies in. They really should have batted and tried to take control of the Test match. I agree. And I think that some of the reports were... Well, there's a fear that if they batted first, they get blown away. And they may well have done. But I think that their, their main chance of winning was to bat first. 
I think that the reason that they lost is that Australia are a lot better at cricket than they are and <laughs> that they didn't fluff their lines. I just think Australia are a really good side. And yeah, but you say they didn't fluff their lines, but you just said they should have batted first. So, which is it? Yeah, but I think had they batted first, they probably would have got blown away. <laughs> I think Australia is vastly better but, than But them. it's a negative way to start a test match, isn't it? If you go in saying, you know, we're not going to bat in case we get skittled. I mean, you, you, you're beating yourself almost. Well, it looked good, though. They got Joe Burns out first ball. Like, Trent Bolt was swinging it around hoops nice and early. The new ball was doing a bit. But Kane Williamson was clouded by the... A bit of overcast conditions and thought, okay, we might be able to roll Australia early here. And they just big mistake, they just had no luck after that. They Australia sort of put on partnership after partnership and built that total to get over 400. There are days in Melbourne when it is a bowling first day. I remember 2010 11 when England bowled first and they just trying to br- forget <laughs> brutalized Australia, but that was 10 degrees and it was going to be overcast the whole day. This was kind of morning cloud. I think there's a huge difference. Now, all the speculation leading into the test match was about the MCG pitch, the much maligned MCG pitch. Tim Payne at the end of the game said it was a fantastic wicket. Do you think the wicket was okay? Yeah, I think it was. I, I remember at the end of Boxing Day, I sent out a tweet saying, look, it was better than I'd feared, but I, th- I still would love a, um, a pitch that gives a better spectacle for 80,000 people. And quite a few people said, actually, to a degree, the, the negative tactics from the Kiwis. And I think when Australia bowled, it showed that had Australia bowled first on the first day, then it probably would have been a better spectacle. So for me, ultimately, it comes down to Jim at the pub. Um, <laughs> this bloke who goes to the MCG test every year. And Jim. Jim, and he's been scathing the last couple of years. I saw him last night. He said he had a great boxing day. So if Jim's happy, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy. I think we can get too caught up in expecting every wicket to be perfect. and You just can't do that. But I think it, it was certainly a pass. The other sort of uh, theme running through this test match, and we'll get into the cricket in a minute, was all the fuss about the decision review system. I sort of think that the actual system works fine, like technically, the technology's good. I just think sometimes the umpire who's interpreting the replays gets it wrong. We saw Aleem Dar give Mitchell Santon a nod out, and we're not, I'm not sure whether he saw the, the replay of the ball hitting the, the part of his glove, the sweatband on his glove, but if he did see that, how can you give it a nod out? So I think the problem is less on the technology, more with the actual umpires who use it. I agree with that, and I think in that instance there, Aleem Dar should have taken longer. And I think if he waited another 30 seconds and, and just taken his time to see that final replay, because it took everyone a little bit of time to get the definitive replay, that probably speaks to where they need specialist third umpires who really um, learn the technology inside out, are really good with communication and working with the director and explaining themselves so that you can get it captured on the air exactly why they're giving the reasons for their decisions. I think he got that one wrong, but I agree with you that the technology is, is fine. And it annoys me sometimes when players criticise the ball tracking technology because they don't understand it. And Tim Payne actually said, I did read this morning that I've got an invite, that is to have a look at the technology, so I might take it up at some stage, but I'm not too interested. Well, if you're not too interested, then don't give the criticism in the first place. And I, but I do think they should actually proactively come out and show these decisions with scrutiny. When, when the player has said, I don't think it was the right call, spend five minutes showing the algorithms and working everything through so those who are interested can satisfy themselves that they got it right. I think my concern at the moment with the DRS, it relies on captains and teams challenging, that you've got a system where Australia didn't challenge, I can't remember who it was, the LBW decision, I think. Blundell, yeah. It was three reds, it was hitting the stumps, but just because they didn't challenge, it's not out. And I think the first time it really struck home was in the Ashes and that headlining test when Stokes was out LBW, but because Australia had burned their review... There was nothing the to problem fall back with on. any alternative is, though, the umpires will never make a decision if they are given the option of That's going to dream. DRS. My dream is well, for there to be my, my dream is robot umpires. Me too. No umpires, just a little. We mini- should host a podcast together. <laughs> mini Hawkeye out there, just just sitting there, and just, yeah, you know. just an iPad at the end of the pitch, exactly on a, on a tripod. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting. In tennis, they've introduced this new technology, which is like there's no lines, people. It's all automated. So if a ball lands out, you'll suddenly hear. a automated voice call out. I don't see why there's stuff like that that we can't do in cricket. I um, heard Steady Eddie Cowan on his cricket podcast saying he went into the Hawkeye truck at one stage when he was playing to go through it all because he wanted to understand it. The point that stands out from that is, is that the maths that goes into the ball tracking is very complicated. And then when they make the vision on the TV screens to show where the ball would go for the spectators... 
that's kind of an interpretation of the maths. Yes. So the maths is right and you're going to get the right result, but the actual vision we see might look a bit off, but that's just the way they interpret the maths. And it shows as well that time and time again, what we've always thought is not necessarily the case. You look at a replay of cricket from the 1980s and there'll be an LBW appeal and the comment, it was given not out and all the commentators go, oh, that was going down leg. And with modernise, you go, no, that was hitting leg stump. It's the same sort of thing. Tim Payne was saying with his dismissal, I shouldn't have been out because uh, Wagner was wide on the crease and the angle that it hit me at, it had to be going down the leg side. No, it didn't because seven cameras with highly sophisticated technology and algorithms that have been proven at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology showed that you're out, champion. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is keen for this DRS to take over cricket. Now, speaking of Tim Payne, great test for Tim Payne. Scored 79 runs in the first innings for Australia. Was aggressive. Took the attack to the Kiwis that were trying to bounce him out. He took eight dismissals, a couple of smart stumping. So I think a really strong test match for Tim Payne. I think without a doubt. The consensus is slowly becoming that while he was brought in to do a job essentially as captain, that people are going, hang on a sec, he's still the best wicketkeeper, I think, in the country by far. I think Alex Carey still has a long way to go to get to the consistency. Well, he's of, Peter Neville's the second best wicketkeeper. Yeah, and that there's really no alternative if you're looking at wicketkeepers for the Australian test team at the moment. And then and captains. And captains and, and batting-wise, like I think he's got the third best batting average behind um, Gilly, Gilly and, and uh, Haddon, Haddon, I believe. Yeah, yeah so he's slowly plotted away and become a really fundamental part of that Australian cricket team. I really like the way he came out and batted really positively as well. Needs to do more of that. I think that's that's great. That's what you need at number seven. And it's the best way for him to play. Now, Steve Smith scored 85 and answered these stupid critics that say he's had a quiet summer. I don't know who's been saying that. They haven't been watching the cricket. He just hasn't had much of a chance. I blew up on the radio last night because... if Warner and Labuschagne are batting all day, Smith's not going to score many runs. It's just a fact. But but what stood out to me was the way he blew up at the umpires before lunch on the first day. About so he he if you haven't seen it, he he tried to evade a short ball and the ball struck him. And I think they took a single and then the umpire signalled as a dead ball, sort of saying that Smith hadn't actually tried to evade the ball. Look, I don't care about that decision whether he evaded it or not. It's a matter of interpretation. But what stood out to me was the way Smith blew up at the umpires quite visibly on the ground, on the MCG, on Boxing Day. And I just think it shows he hasn't quite evolved enough yet to be the Australian captain again. Yeah, I agree. I I think I agree with everything you said. Smith is just such a passionate person when it comes to cricket. He will not let anything get in his way. Well, then maybe he shouldn't be captain again. I mean, that's just the the fact. He can be a great player. He can be vice-captain. But perhaps he has not got the temperament to be the captain of this side. I mean, he's clearly the best player in the world in Test cricket at the moment. But we've seen in the past players like Lara, Tendulkar, be the best player in the world but not be captain. I would say that Virat Kohli's got quite an aggressive mannerisms and things on the field as well. And I think he's one of the best captains in the world. I don't think it's necessarily something but that I think can be mutually what the difference, exclusive. The difference between Smith and Coley is I think Smith has started to lose awareness of what the line is for an Australian captain. And if that had been Tim Payne blowing it up at the umpire in the middle of the MCG, a lot more would have been made of it. It's a good point you make about Coley. I think that in the past, Indian captains probably haven't been aggressive enough. And so Coley has been a, a real breath of fresh air. Ganguly was the same. But sometimes MS Dhoni allowed things to drift a little bit. The fact that Coley's there really... Uh, aggressively making decisions, I think, is, a, is, is the right sort of thing for an Indian captain. Whereas for Australia, I don't think we've tended to have that problem. And, and I think Coley probably does need to rein it in a little bit at times as well. So I think that that's probably the weakest part of his captaincy. And I think it's possibly the weakest part of what Smith's captaincy would be. So yeah, I, I tend to think with, with you, Menes, it's going to be very interesting to see. But at this stage, I'd be just as happy if he didn't become captain again. Now, Cummins and Pattinson were absolutely superb in this MCG test. Pat Cummins took five for in the first innings. Pattinson, three wickets in each innings. Pat Cummins got an LBW. You'll like this. He got an LBW in the MCG test. It was his first LBW in 70 dismissals since March 2018. Incredible. And he should aim at the stumps more. Yeah, he might exactly. have a bit of success. Might get, <laughs> might get, you know, be better than he already is. It's a strange statistic, though, because he's bowling the house down. He's the best in the world. Yet, I suppose you look at that and you say... Maybe he should be aiming at the stumps slightly more. I mean, it sounds ridiculous for, you know, for me to say that, but maybe, maybe there's something to it. Hey, um, one other thing I wanted to say about um, 
there was that story on social media about Geordie Barrett, who is an, uh, a rugby player for New Zealand and All Black, being kicked out of the MCG. And from all reports, and I haven't heard the MCG contradict this, from all reports it was because he drank beer a little bit too quickly, that he had either half a beer that he sculled or he sculled two beers. And I find this a... You know, look, if there's something more to it, then by all means, I'll be happy to be re-educated. But if that's all it was, then I would say, yes, if someone's carrying on like a complete pork chop, the action has to be taken. But imagine that you've flown all the way from New Zealand. You've paid all that money on flights, all that money on accommodation, all that money for the tickets. You're there to cheer your country on in the country that claims to be the most larrikin country that we celebrated Bob Hawke sculling a beer. And then you've drunk half a beer or two beers quickly. He's six foot five, 96 kilos Two mid-strength beers are going to do virtually nothing to him. Then you're kicked out of the ground. You have the humiliation of being kicked out of the ground and banned for a day. I find this utterly disgraceful. And as I said, if there's more to it, then you know, let me know. But they should say to the security staff before each day's play, these are our greatest clients, these people. They are paying big money to see a form of the game that all around the world is always under threat. Treat them with great respect. Sure, if someone's behaving crazily, do something. But I was in Edgbaston where a bloke drank an entire jug of some sort of cocktail and then poured the ice on his head. And the steward walked over to him and I thought, oh, they're going to take him out and shoot him like they would in Australia. <laughs> and he said, mate, that was a waste of good ice. And it was just, you know, he was clearly watching him to make sure that he wasn't going to do anything stupid, but there was a, a human touch to it. So I, I find this really insulting. We had 18,000 New Zealanders. They made the test match. They made a huge input into the Victorian economy. This could be a regular thing that we have this happening. But, geez, I'll tell you what, if, if we're going to treat them like that, then who would come? Wow, you are so passionate about this, more passionate than DRS. Um, I am passionate. And it's not because he's an all-black. I've never heard of him. I'm just passionate because I don't think that people should be at the ground having to look sideways for fear of being I, I, kicked out. I am with you. And this has been an issue I've been talking about for a long time on the podcast. And, and I do think the Australian public is partly to blame because I've been to the cricket where people have got way too drunk and yeah, it's that's been true. pretty nasty. So the authorities had to do something, but they've gone way too far the other way. If you go to the Sydney cricket ground now... You're too afraid to stand up and cheer for your team because someone from the officials will come up and tell you to be quiet or they'll kick you out. You go to the SCG, everyone sits on their hands. There's no singing, there's no cheering. The only people that give atmosphere now are the visiting fans because they come from countries where you're allowed to have fun at the cricket. And I think you're exactly right, Paul. And this is really typifies where it's going wrong in the grounds in Australia. There's In the 2015 World Cup, the Australian home semi-final at the SCG, the Australian fans sat there like stunned mullets with only the Indians giving any atmosphere because the fun police are ruining people trying to enjoy the cricket. And you can't drink, you can't sing, you can't eat good food, you can't bring in good food. It's just a farce. You've missed one thing there that I also have a massive gripe about. Go. The beer snake. I think the beer snake is one of the best parts of the cricket where people get their empty beer cups and join them together. What is wrong with that as well? There was a great moment during the Perth Test match against New Zealand where essentially they had built this massive, maybe 200 cup long beer snake and they could see security coming down. So the crowd just started passing around to (laughs) get it away from security and the security would come down another way. So they'd pass it over the other side of the stadium. But it's just strange that these fans are here to have a good time and the New Zealand fans were the best part of that Test match. I think... I would go almost as far to say they were better than the Barmy Army when they were travelling down here. And I think what the, part of the problem is that there's a, a degree of being at arm's length here. I think if you complained to Cricket Australia, they'd be able to say, oh, well, it's the ground. If you complained to the ground, they'd be able to say, oh, well, it's the security firm that we hire. I'd like to see Cricket Australia to lead this and say, right, we're going to have to change the approach. And you can, you can do it with a perfect balance. If someone's vomiting all over the seats and falling down drunk, yes, you've got to do something about that. But this was ridiculous. Just before we wrap up the MCG Test match, the ICC World Test Championship now has India and Australia opening up a big lead on the rest of the table. It does add some excitement to the SCG Test, the fact that you know Australia are looking to catch India on this World Test Championship no, table. No, it, it adds zero excitement. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing because the excitement is that in 18 months' time, Australia's going to play India at Lords, and that's going to be great. But obviously, it's, it's all done and dusted. Australia could lose this game to New Zealand. They could win and it could be a draw. It's not going to matter. Australia and India are so far clear, they're going to come first and second. And so I think that's one of the problems of this format, where coming third means nothing. Whether you come third or last means nothing. There needs to be some 
relegation or, or something. playoff even. Yes, yeah, something. Yeah, the top four teams playoff. Yeah, or something to make it. Um, and plus, of course, the regular criticism that no one understands the the scoring system, which I'm sure the scoring system is just not that hard. But people are used to being able to say, you know, two points for a win and one point for a tie, and then that's that. They don't want to have to um, study mathematics at, at an advanced level to work out what's happening. The Australian-India series next year, I'm really looking forward to now because it will be a, will be a preview two. between one and two. That's right. All right, now let's look ahead to the Sydney Cricket Ground test. There has been some speculation that Swepson might play as the second spinner. I don't think he will. We've talked about this before. Nathan Lyon was asked today whether he would consider resting, as Shane Warne suggested, to give Swepson a go. Lyon retorted with, I didn't see Warney rest too often to give Stuart McGill a game. So um, I don't think we'll see Swepson play. I think Marnus will be the second spinner. I, I guess the big question around the SCG is a bit like the MCG. What will the pitch be like? Will it have some bounce and carry? We've seen it in the past couple of years be a pretty dead, benign test wicket. So like the MCG, it has a big challenge. Certainly does. Just on Swepson, he shouldn't play and he shouldn't be in the side. I mean, I've got... Uh, I saw him at the SCG in the Shield game. He's obviously a decent bowler, but he's got a career bowling average of 35. I think he did, and he's, yes, he's averaging 26.6 this season in Sheffield Shield cricket, and we've got a bit of a dearth of spinners. But I think you've got to be doing better than that to force your way into the Australian squad. And uh, yeah, Warren's comments were perplexing to say the least, and I completely agree with Lyon. The pitch, I'm afraid, I'm afraid for this pitch as well. I just hope it's. Um, Gives a bit of spin, a bit I of I mean, life. the big bash pitches at the SCG have been good the last couple. There's been a bit of bounce, a bit of carry. I know Paul's shaking his head here because he wants the perfect pitch every time. But like, if the pitch was like the big bash, had a bit of bounce and a bit of carry, that would be a vast improvement on last year where the ball hardly carried. I just think there's a bit of a, a myth around this whole, oh, we need to play two spinners in Sydney. I remember earlier this year around the Sydney test this year, looking at the stats and going... Spin actually hasn't taken that many wickets of the SCG for the last six, seven no, years. Right, and I don't get why we have this fascination every single year of, oh, we need to pick a second spinner for when we come to Sydney, where it's like... Oh, no. I think they've just picked Swepson to get him in the squad mm. ahead of the Bangladesh tour. I guess but, another question is, will the game go ahead with the, with the smoke? If, if it were to get very smoky in Sydney, would they have to call off a couple of days? And you know, could we see a three, four-day test match? Well, potentially. It would be an absolute disaster if it happened, but it's, it's certainly um, not beyond the realms of possibility. I don't think Swepson would do well in Bangladesh. I don't think he's the right type of bowler to, to, to go I there. I agree, yeah. I think Stephen O'Keefe should be going to Bangladesh. Definitely. So that's the Aussies. I mean, there's not a lot on the line for the Aussies, just a, a chance to sweep the summer 5-0. The big change is for the Kiwis. They've brought in former New South Wales spinner and three-test player Will Somerville. So across four seasons, he played 12 Sheffield Shield games for New South Wales and claimed 48 wickets, an average of 25.29. He's then played three tests now for New Zealand and taken 14 wickets at 25. So I'm not sure why he wasn't brought over originally, but that's a big inclusion. Also went to the same school as me, so I'm happy to see him in the test team for the Kiwis. I hope he plays. Definitely a like-for-like like replacement for Trent Bolt there, isn't he? Just yeah. getting getting the little right arm well, off well, here. Why don't they bring in Matt Henry for Bolt and they'll punt Santner? Yeah, you, you can't see Santner playing after his last two tests. It's just, it's really hard when he's picked as, he's an all-rounder, but he's picked as their frontline spinner and Jeet Raval was spinning it and looking more dangerous over in Perth than he was in both Perth and Melbourne. And I think they just need to pick a sp- specialist spinner because I think Australia has showed that they can be susceptible to spin on certain occasions, but just not at the quality that Santa was producing, and no. not at the lack of consistency. No. And as on well. Australian wickets, we play spin pretty well. I think it's going to be tough whoever they pick. Yeah, they did it last time round with Mark Craig, who looked like he wasn't going to be able to succeed on Australian conditions, and he took well, like one for five hundred. Santa could bowl for, for ten years on Australian conditions before he gets uh, any wickets. I up. think that hundred he scored against England probably saved him, Santa, but it was it was a mistake. All right, now, the much-anticipated Test Player of the Year award points have been allocated by Paul and I. I'll just save um, Paul the trouble because we went exactly the same way. Paul and I went three points to James Pattinson, two points to Travis Head and one point to Pat Cummins. Pattinson took three for 34 and three for 35. Travis Head, 114. Pat Cummins, five for 28 in the first innings. Now, there was a tweet sent in that maybe we should get our guest who's on the show to allocate points. But, Paul, my theory is, I mean, this 
is such a coveted award that we can't kind of denigrate it by uh, having inconsistent points awarded. You know, last week we didn't have a guest. Before that, it was Jaleesa. I think if we were to get our guests to give points, it would take away from the, um, I guess, the sort of gravitas of this fine award. And what we should do is every new guest we have on, get them to retrospectively give points for all the games of the summer so far, <laughs> and then we can have it all consistent. <laughs> have, have the guest scoreboard, just the cumulative of... Yeah, we could do that as well, yeah. Do you have the total points? No, I was hoping you'd do that. <laughs> <laughs> should we pull them up? Uh, yeah, I can find them out. So the leaderboard now for the Cricket Unfiltered Test Player of the Year Award, minus Labuschagne ahead on 14 points. Warner and Stark tied for second spot on nine, nine points. Pattinson on six points. Lyon, three points. Head, four points. Cummins, three points. Paul, I would say it's going to be pretty hard for Marnus to get usurped at the SCG. It would take a, a big performance from Warner or Stark. Yeah, it would. Well, it would need... That would I, need maximum points. And would need Labuschagne not to get anything. So... So exciting, this award. It's added a huge dimension to the show. We're going to take a quick break, then we're going to be back with the cricket headlines. Now, uh, when we come back from the break, you'll hear me talking to Chris Green from the Sydney Thunder. Paul and I, in the last episode, were talking about what it would be like to be a professional T20 player. So I was able to ask Chris about that. All right, I'm standing here on the outfield with Chris Green, Sydney Thunder star. Chris, I wanted to ask you about your sort of uh, T20 career. You've just been signed for the Kolkata Knight Riders in the IPL. How exciting was that? Yeah, over the moon. A um, little bit unexpected. I gave myself every chance in the auction um, going down low, so uh, I can't wait. It's really exciting. Eden Gardens in India, arguably the pinnacle of T20 tournament cricket there, and so I can't wait to get over and experience every aspect of it. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be amazing. What T20 leagues have you played in? I've played in a few now. So I've been in, been to Pakistan, Canada, the England, uh, Caribbean. Uh, snuck to Norway for a weekend, uh, and then T10 and Big Bash. So I think that just about covers them. So I've been busy. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so what's it like for you, sort of forging this path where you're sort of not playing the traditional games and focusing on T20 cricket? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm living my dream, traveling the world, playing the, the sport that I absolutely love. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to do so and grateful for the opportunities that I continue to get. Since losing my state contract here at New South Wales, I've been fortunate to, I guess, get these regular opportunities to continue to develop my cricket um, on big stages in different conditions around the world and, and I guess continue to develop not only my, my all-round game but also myself as a person so I've learned so much um, about the game of cricket about myself and, and life in general so it's been you know incredibly humbling and, and a lot of fun along the way. Yeah I bet we were saying on the podcast that it's so great for say domestic cricketers now that there's another option that if you're not playing say for the national side you can still make a really good career out of professional cricket. Absolutely look I think it you know it allows you to, to showcase your skills can, as I said, continue to, to adapt your game and, and learn and play against and with some of the best players in the world. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to, to play alongside a lot of my childhood heroes growing up and, and against them as well and spend time with them, whether it be at breakfast at the bar after games overseas and, you know, pick their brains and, <laughs> yeah, and, and pick their brains on, on the game, on my game and, and, you know, just listen to their stories. And what age did you think maybe just playing T20 cricket could be the right option for you? Oh, look, I haven't, I haven't hung my hat on it and, and sort of shut off all my other options. I, I still want to try and push and play one-day cricket and, and four-day cricket. I, I'm just not getting op- any opportunities to, to do so at the moment, and all my opportunities are coming in, in the T20 format. So that's all I've got to, to follow and, and continue to, to do my best and contribute to the team's success as much as possible. And uh, have you sort of talked to the Australian selectors about the T20 World Cup? and Have they given you any idea what they want to see from you? Yeah, look, I've got some good feedback recently from them uh, when I was overseas and and just saying, look, I'm there and thereabouts. The opportunities and experience that I I bring from overseas cricket is obviously something that they like seeing and seeing and putting, you know, good performances on the board is obviously crucial. Ashton Agar and Adam Zampa are doing a great job for Australia as we saw the start of the summer against Pakistan and and Sri Lanka. They they played a crucial role through the middle period and I'll continue to, to push my case by bowling the power play and through the middle and hopefully the back end and contributing with the bat. I think that's, you know, my biggest opportunity to to score runs and contribute with the bat for the Sydney Thunder and and you you never know what happens from there. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Manners. I'm here with Lachlan and Paul and that was Chris Green from the Sydney Thunder and Paul 
as we discussed, it sounds like a pretty sweet life being a T20 cricketer. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're performing, I suppose, it sounds um, absolutely idyllic. I once did a calendar, if I could actually play cricket well, it's been <laughs> my years in the um, sort of Brendan McCullum style from swanning from cricket grounds to beaches to ski, ski resorts over the years, it would be great. But I suppose if you start to not perform, it's pretty ruthless these days as well. All right, now let's get into the cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. Well, Australia has lost one of its great servants. Peter Siddle has retired from the national side. He retires with 221 test wickets and is 13th on the list of Aussie test wicket takers. And I would say no offence to Peter Siddle, a great bowler, great bloke, one of the, the, the best competitors. But to me, he didn't leave a huge impression on me. When I sort of looked back over his <laughs> performances over the last 10 years, Jeez, I couldn't really come up with anything apart from that hat trick. For me, I, I think the calibre of the player comes down to the amount of tributes that were put out to him in the last sort of few days since he announced his retirement. I think Ricky Ponning came out and said, he was always the first name on my team sheet, which I think is a pretty glowing endorsement from one of Australia's greatest ever cricketers. And I think... Come on, mate. He's not one of Australia's greatest ever cricketers. Ricky Ponning. Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying Peter <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think Peter Siddle came into the Australian team at a really interesting time where you sort of... McGrath had gone. Lee was at the back end of his career. And those fast bowling stocks had sort of dropped off a bit that... We were going through that phase. I don't of, even think it was just that as well. I think the team was struggling. Yeah, it was the team a, was after all the greats retired, and we were losing when we weren't used to it. His first wicket in Test cricket, Sachin Tendulkar okay. in India. That's not a bad way to start your career. And I think I looked the other day. His last one was Josh Butler over in the Ashes. But I think he's almost been like a gap filler, essentially. That when there's been a role that they've needed to play, someone who they can rely on to hit line and line. You're not giving him a glowing endorsement. You've just said he's a gap filler. I, th- I think he'd be happy to take that, especially if you look at the Ashes. He, he wouldn't have been the first name on anyone's list, but he played that role perfectly over there where because he showed from his county form that he's suited to the conditions. Well, and when look, when Justin Langer was made coach, he wanted to get Siddle in the group for his attitude, and I think that was a smart move. Well, I think you know, the main stat is always the average, and he averaged 30.66, which slightly better than Brett Lee, who's regarded as a very fine cricketer. And I, I agree with Lachlan's point that he, at a, at a time when Australian cricket was really struggling, there were periods where he was kind of our only test-class bowler. And I, I was at the Ashes at Lords in 2013 when Australia had a horrible first day, England got a million runs, and it was kind of like Siddle seemed to be the only guy that was really standing up. And so in a dark period for Australia, he bowled pretty well, and I think it's a, it's a very fine career. We obviously mentioned the hat-trick before. Obviously, one of the greatest moments um, re- in recent Australian cricket history, and why everyone... we lost that series? That's the thing. Everyone forgets how much, how badly we got beaten I don't, I don't that know series. Why. We, we didn't even win that bloody Test match. Alistair Cook batted for five days. No, I think they made five hundred in the second innings, England. So I you're not a fan he... of the, the birthday hat trick? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now go get, it, go get him, let's listeners. Get it, let's get into some happy stuff. <laughs> let's talk about the big bash. Now we're recording this. Monday, the 30th of December, Australian time. So, obviously, you might be listening to it after a few more games have been played. But as we record this, Adelaide Strikers are on top of the table with four matches played, three wins, one no result, seven points. In second spot are the Sydney Sixers with five matches played, three wins and six points. And then it's all pretty tight. But if you go right down the bottom, there's a couple of teams struggling. The Perth Scorchers have won one from four. And the defending champions are none from four. Four. They are in big trouble. They botched the game against the Strikers on Sunday night Australian time. Aaron Finch was run out in farcical circumstances. The Australian one day and T20 captain hit the ball and just sort of ball watched as he stumbled up the pitch and then was run out without even really trying to get in. Great throw from Rashid Khan, but just you look at that and there's this perfect side on angle where he's just sort of slowly jogging, watching the ball going, oh, it's not going to come to my end. And then he doesn't even sort of go for it. He just It's a schoolboy error, Lachlan. You can say it for what it is. I agree. I think the Renegades are in big trouble and the Scorchers, Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm sad about the Scorchers because for many years... I'm sad. I, I am. Because I, <laughs> I think for many years they, they were the heartbeat of the Big Bash that you'd go over there to the it's furnace... It's the Sixers' turn and the Thunder's turn. No, but I'm looking at it from a Big Bash point of view that you'd mm. go over there to the furnace, they'd have... The whacker was absolutely bursting at the seams and it was just... You, you think to yourself, how is it that domestic cricket has suddenly become this good and this exciting and this interesting? So 
to see them now losing, and I know they're getting good crowds, but it's half empty at Someone the stadium. Someone has to lose. <laughs> I, I think the Scorchers will be fine this season. I know they're one from four. You think they'll be fine? Uh, no, fine. I think that, you think they'll be fine? Yeah, I think they'll make the finals. I Really? Think, yeah, I think they've got a really good team. They've got a really good bowling lineup, and I still think that they've got so such a mate, high I've quality. Seen, I've seen you at the Big Bash game, so I know you're watching. This is a terrible take. You never, what matters, we might be um, listening to this in a month's time. And um, look, listeners, <laughs> you, hear, for you, forgiveness. you heard it here first. That, you I, know, that's, I think, especially now that there's five places up for grabs in the finals, that means only three teams miss out. They've got enough home games so who over and out then? Who misses I out? I think Renegades, definitely. I the, think... The hot take. <laughs> hot take. I think Hobart. Um, yep. I just think relying a bit too much on Darcy Short and maybe not as strong a bowling lineup. They'll get Wade back, though. The best all-rounder in the country. <laughs> His bowling will be a crucial asset for them. So you've got Hobart, the Renegades. Well, I've got both of them missing out. Who's your other team? Probably Brisbane. I think Chris Lynn's a bit too unpredictable. I think that one innings at the SCG, we won't see that until for another three or four games. Max Bryant's been disappointing at the top of the order. Tom Banton, he's obviously been injured a um, couple of games, but they're going to rely upon him too much. And I just think overall their bowling lineup, while they've got sort of um, Benny Loughlin, who's been moved up there, and he's, he's a good bowler, highest wicket taker in the BBL history, but they're not as feared as other teams are when you've got someone like Matt Renshaw becoming a class all-rounder. Right, I okay. think that's... Yep. What I find interesting is that our guest here, Lachlan, has said that he doesn't think that Perth's season is over and you've mocked him for that. And then a few seconds, because it's too outlandish, and then a few seconds later when he said that he doesn't think the Renegades will make the final, after being requested by you, you've mocked him for that for being too obvious. Like, what's he supposed to say? <laughs> well, he's backed into a corner now. Um, all right. I want to talk about an important issue, though. It happened the first game after the Christmas break. The Stars hosted the Strikers at their spiritual home on the Gold Coast, the <laughs> Metricon Stadium. Now, 7,500 people turned up, which is not a terrible crowd. but More it's, than the Gold Coast Suns probably would have yeah, gone. Exactly, yeah. but it's... Okay, that's got to go out of the show. <laughs> um, um, but they... Um, I think they should have played that game at Marvel Stadium. I know it's the Renegades' home ground, but it's in Melbourne, where the Stars are from. Adelaide's a big game. If there was no other time to play it, then play it at Marvel Stadium, where it, I reckon you would have got 25,000, 30,000 people there. Easy. I think Marvel would have been definitely a step up on Gold Coast. I looked, it up the, I, I looked up the the distances involved, and by analogy, it would be very similar like this. to a team from London playing a team from Glasgow and finding out <laughs> that the Glasgow Stadium is not available, so saying... We're going to play it in Warsaw in Poland. <laughs> That's the sort of distances we're talking about. It's just bizarre. The fact that 7,500 people turned up is amazing. They should, all be get, they should find them and give them a medal for turning up. Yeah, Marvel would have been okay. I don't think they would have got that many. I reckon maybe more like 15,000, but still, that's double it. But what I think they should have done is found a way in the schedule to have played this game at the MCG. This is one of the biggest rivalries in Australian sport. Anytime Melbourne plays Adelaide in anything, it's massive. Don't play it at the Gold Coast. If you have to have a game that is shunted up there, make it a game against the Hurricanes or something at the very least. So this game should have been Hello, played... Hello, Hobart. <laughs> this game should have been played at the MCG. They should have found a way to make it happen. Or play it at the Adelaide... Or even the Adelaide Oval. Take the home game to Adelaide and play a second game there. Or at least flip it around because they'll have to play them again later in the season. So just have the home game now and play it at the MCG and flip it around. Or yeah, something like that. Now, there was a... A thriller at the SCG on Saturday night. Lachlan and I were both there. The Sixers beat the Thunder in a super over. It was the fourth super over in BBL history. All four have involved the Sixers. The Sixers and the Thunder tied on 149 runs after 20 overs. The Sixers scored 16 in their super over. The Thunder fell just one short. It was one of the best games of Big Bash cricket I've ever been to. Great bowling, great catching, great batting. It was thrilling. Tom Curran was immense for the Sydney Sixers with the bat and ball. And just a wonderful, wonderful evening. And I will never forget Moses Enriquez playing a double reverse ramp for six over sort of third man. (laughs) And I tried to work out where the double reverse comes in. So it's the reverse ramp because he's tried to hit it over with the reverse side of his bat. But then he's hit it the wrong way. So he's hit it rather than to find he's hit the third man. So that's the first reverse. The second reverse is the fact he's hit it actually on the wrong side of his body. Like if he was going to hit it that way, it should have been on the other side of his body. <laughs> so it is 
a double reverse ramp, and I've never seen that before. It was great chatting to him after the, the game that he said, oh, yeah, I middled it. I don't know what the, <laughs> the, the fuss is about. But it was clearly one of the most incredible shots I think we've ever seen. And to pull it off in a super over, there was um, a bit of chat around some of the other Sixers players were saying, Moses never plays the, the ramp shot, and it's incredible that not only did he pull out two, but he pulled out one that went for four, one that went for six, and essentially one, and they got on top of that super over. Now, that Moses Enriquez shot made me think of a very commonly used quote by Richie Benno that when you go to a game of cricket, you will usually see something you haven't seen before. And that was that shot by Enriquez at the Boxing Day test on the last day. I've never seen before a player edge the ball on the inside edge of their bat and it go to leg slip sort of between bat and pad and Warner took the catch. Have you ever seen that before? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's... It wasn't as memorable for me as it clearly was for everyone else. Because I'd never seen it before. I, I may have seen and it... And Vaughan, all the experts. I may have seen it dozens of times. It no, just you, didn't you register as that interesting. Um, okay. That's also a baseball quote. Um, I think it was is it Buster Olney or some other guy said, you know, you go to the ballpark, you're going to see something that you've never seen before. Every single time you're going to go, you're going to see something unique. Well, that maybe Ben Benno stole it from there. <laughs> Speaking of things we haven't seen before... We had this weird scene in the Renegades Strikers game where Greg Davidson, the umpire, went to give an LBW decision, changed his mind halfway, and then just scratched his nose instead of giving out. Now, I've seen that plenty of times at park cricket. <laughs> Never on the biggest stage like that, though. Now, did he get it right? The, the, he did get it right. That's Everyone said the batsman hit it. Okay. Because when I, 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 was, I was keen for ultra edge to, to determine it, because I couldn't tell from the replays, but everyone seemed to say it. So, yeah, he got the decision right. Good on him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just think it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. The, something not too dissimilar happened in the uh, England versus South Africa test match a, a couple of nights before involving Paul Rifle, where Joffre Archer bowled a waist-high full toss and was given a no ball. And then he did the next ball exactly the same thing. And, and Rifle started to stick his arm out and then... Joffre Archer's screaming at him and Rifle suddenly thought, oh, he's going to be out of the attack here. And they sort of think, oh, it was, it was an attempted slow ball. We won't bother um, pinging him for it. And I think that was, um, that was probably a case of the umpire making a wrong decision. I heard Kevin Roberts on the radio during the test match talking about how the, the average score in the big bash is up. The average first inning score is almost up by 20 runs per innings and the chasing teams haven't been as dominant in this big bash. So it seemed like it was if you win the toss and bowl, you were going to win the game, whereas now that's sort of evened up. So I think we are actually seeing a much better big bash than we saw last summer. What do you think, Lachlan? I think this is a much better big bash. I think it's... It's really good how people have got cricket to go home to at night now that I think that's what everyone loves about the Big Bash. That it's got to be good cricket. It's got to be good that's cricket. The, that's the thing. Last year there was cricket on every night, but it wasn't good every night. This this summer there seems to be something electric almost happening every night, whether it's Maxwell, Lynn, uh, the, the Super Over. There just seems to be more happening. All right, that was the cricket headlines. We are going to take a quick break. Before we take the break, I would like to ask you, if you have a moment, please go and rate and review the podcast on wherever you listen to the show. Or if you've got time, why not share it on social media so your cricket-loving friends know about Cricket Unfiltered. Paul, where can they find us on TikTok? Cricket Unfiltered, all one word. And we're on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's A-U-S Cricket Pod. All right, now we'll take a break. Then I'll be back with the Pope, not not the Pope from the Vatican, but Lloyd Pope, the Sydney Sixers leg spinner. I've just asked him a few questions about his development and tried to make a few jokes, which fell very flat. And after that, we'll have Can't Let It Go. So I'm here on the SCG outfield with young Sydney Sixers spinner Lloyd Pope. Lloyd, firstly, how are you adjusting to the pace of Sydney coming from Adelaide? Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's a, it's certainly different to Adelaide. Adelaide's sort of just in a square and it's a little bit quieter. And Sydney's got all the roads and everything. I've got lost trying to drive around a little bit, but um, we're staying in Coogee, so it's a, it's a beautiful area and yeah, I'm loving life up here. And and how are your teammates? Any sort of uh, aggravating players? Um, aggravating the bowls who are in the nets. They're um, pretty damn good batters. So, but yeah, everyone's everyone's a really good bloke. They welcomed me in last year and made me feel really comfortable and. Uh, we obviously stay um, in the hotel with the, with the overseas and interstate boys, so we all get along pretty well. 
Now, I was really interested in the work Mitch Swepson did with Shane Warne. He spoke that before a big bash game last year, they did a bit of work in the nets, and, and Warney really told him to slow down and take his time between deliveries and even just before he bowls. What's your approach to the crease like? Do you try and sort of rush through? Are you quick? Where are you with that? Yeah, I'm a little bit different to Mitch. I think that's very tailored advice, what Warne's given him, and it's obviously working. He's bowling really well at the moment, but... Um, different strokes for different folks I guess I mean you look at Rashid Khan who's probably one of the most successful white ball leg spinners and his run up's really really fast um, others like Sandeep Lamachane and, and those sort of guys so I think there's there's bits to model from from both um, and I'm trying to sort of find my, my own own groove I guess which is somewhere in the middle of that I like to have um, positive energy through the crease to get up over my front leg and try and spin the ball I guess so I think Schwepson more uses his, his shoulder a little bit like Warren did as well versus because I'm not the strongest guy, I'll try and use a, a little bit of my lower body to get some revolutions on the ball. And what about between balls? You know, Warner used to have that bit of theatre where it's, you know, wait a little bit. Do you ever do that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think you have to pick your batter, though. There's a lot of uh, different strategies you can use. I think if you rush through and over really quickly, some batters might just dot a couple balls up. And in a T20 game, if you get out of your over for four or five, that's an amazing result. So... And then other ways, if the batter's going on top, like Chris Lynn did the other night, maybe you have to slow it up a little bit and just wait a bit longer and keep keep them sort of wanting to hit the ball. So there's different strategies and, and, and works for different players. And last one, how are you coping with the pressure of the big bash? I mean, you're a young man, a lot of expectation you know, put on your shoulders. How are you sort of coping with it all? Uh, I'm loving it. I just look at it as a, as a great opportunity. As a kid watching, watching the big bash, um, Never really thought I would play in it, to be honest. Um, and then to be able to be picked up for the Sixers, just, yeah, it's awesome. Love it every time I step out on the SCG. We've got amazing fans. I think there was 35,000 pe- uh, people here tonight. So it's an amazing atmosphere. And when I'm bowling, I, I don't know, you sort of just blend in and just try and back my own skills and back myself to be able to execute because I, I, I know I can do it. I know I can do it in the net. So it's just a matter of doing it in the middle. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast, Lachlan and Paul are with me, and it is time to finish the podcast the way we like to, with the can't let it go through to the keeper segment, the one bit of cricket news you can't let go of. Lachlan, why don't you lead off? Thank you. Uh, I can't let go of the fans this week, how good they've been. We obviously were talking about the New Zealand fans earlier and how they brought so much energy to that Boxing Day test that they're almost the best part about it because they were so loud and vocal and gave so much energy to both sets of players essentially but one other thing that sort of was missed probably in the broadcasts of cricket over the last five days was at the Big Bash the Sydney Thunder Sydney Stars um, Sydney Sixers game that we were both at that players were there signing autographs until after midnight because the fans and these kids had stuck around for so long to meet these players and just how much of an impact that will make on these young kids that they've got these cricketers that they look up to, your Chris Greens and um, Lloyd Pope signing autographs until well into the early hours of the next morning because it was such a good game and they love cricket because of it. So, yeah, I just really love seeing how engaged these fans were in cricket over the last five days and how much the cricket buyers were willing to give back to them. That's excellent. I'm really heartened by the fact that the players are willing to do that. That's really good. Yeah, the feel-good factor at the Big Bash is through the roof. Paul, what's your can't-let-it-go? I've got two. Firstly, you said that you said some jokes to Lloyd Pope in your interview. I didn't actually hear them, um, <laughs> so that's one. Um, <laughs> well, I said, how are you adjusting to the pace of Sydney coming from Adelaide? Oh. <laughs> if you're going to become a stand-up comedian, you might need better material than that. <laughs> okay, continue. Got some stats for us? <laughs> okay, so my can't-let-it-go is... When Blunder was given not out LBW and Australia didn't review, three separate commentators were sort of talking about the fact that, oh, well, it'll be up on the big screen soon enough. I think it was Gilchrist, uh, Howie and Warren. And it's lighthearted and it's fine. But it's just a little thing that always annoys me that, no, that will never be shown on the big screen because if you pay your $160 to go to the ground, you don't get to see DRS. You don't get to see Hawkeye on the big screen unless DRS is invoked. If the players don't go to it... All they show you is one very hurried, full-time, full-speed um, replay. Now, unless things have changed this season, and I haven't been to the test matches yet this season, so I can't be sure, but in the past, the only time the crowd got to see the actual Hawkeye on the screen was when DRS had been invoked because they're afraid of some sort of riot. And so my can't let it go is if you've paid your money, you should be able to see it. The crowds aren't going to riot. And if Cricket Australia say, well, it's an ICC thing, they've stood up to the ICC before, they could stand up to them again and say, we are going to show it because we, want, we respect our paying patrons. 
And it's, it's one of the reasons people don't go to the cricket because they say you get a bit of view from your couch. So exactly. actually give them all the, the replays at the ground. As you say, they're not going to riot. And if they do, they'll send warning out with a helmet and tell them to be quiet. <laughs> and if look, if, if I've got this wrong, after we go to the Sydney Test match, I'll come back and say, look, I've got it wrong and they are showing it. Now, my can't let it go is the comments made by Kevin Roberts about four-day tests being a possibility in Australia. I just think this is um, a bit of spin by Cricket Australia because next summer Afghanistan are coming and they want to just give them four days and they're just trying to justify it. And I think we're going to see this down the track that when these lesser nations come to Australia, Cricket Australia doesn't want to block off five days of the summer for them when a lot of the test matches will finish in four days. So they are just going to give them a four-day test. But I guarantee when India, South Africa, England, New Zealand maybe, all the big teams come, they'll give them five days. So I just think this is a bit of a way to shorten those tests against smaller nations. I don't like it. In England, uh, we would have um, not got a result in the Ashes. All tests went to five days. So I think this is just something they want to use against the small nations. I think that the big stumbling block for four-day tests is the overrates. If they could get the overrates where they should be, and there's no reason they couldn't bowl 16 or 17 overs an hour, don't tell me that they couldn't, you could suddenly have in four days the equivalent number of overs. You maybe play half an hour extra as you get in five days. And there's a lot to like. You could have every test match starting on a Thursday, finishing on a Sunday, a bit like a golf major. Everyone would know when it's on. You wouldn't have climaxes being played on Mondays in front of no crowds. But until they get the over rates right, as far as I'm concerned, they have to be five days. Well, they're yeah. not even selling tickets to day fives of test matches anymore. They're always just gold coin donations because it's so rare, especially in Australian home summers, that we go to them now. So... Also, the fifth day gives you a bit of a buffer. If you lose a couple of sessions to rain, then you still have a lot of time to get a result. Well, what I'd do is I'd say no because I don't want to lose any overs. I'd say play seven, seven hours a day of 16 overs. Seven 16s are 112 times four is 448. That's the same number of overs minus two as a normal test match. And then play it the same way. I don't like this idea of them saying, oh, well, we can lose 40 overs and might induce captains to be a bit more aggressive because they won't be. Captains will always be... Uh, with a few exceptions, safety first. And I think you'll get some dull draws if you go it that way. So that's why overrates are my big stumbling block. Well, a good way to finish the podcast with Paul talking about overrates. Uh, <laughs> listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Lachlan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to have you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll um, see you out at the Big Bash looking, again. Looking forward to it. And uh, it's great to have a listener on the podcast finally. And Paul, thanks for... Um, being here as usual. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Lachlan. All right, listeners. Well, look, we're going to be back after the Sydney test, hoping to have um, special guests. See you then.